Super Talk Mississippi media production. State Treasurer David McRae has put millions back into the hands of Mississippi citizens, expanding the state's affordable college and career savings program and also returning record amounts of unclaimed money. Check out how Treasurer David McRae's office can help you, your business, or your organization. Treasury.ms.gov. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Morning, Rhino. Howdy, howdy. Drake Bassett, President and CEO of the Palmer Home, will give us a ring at 11:05 and talk about the Radiothon that's coming up this Thursday. Super Talk will be on site at the Palmer Home for Children. We will literally be there all day. It will be a radiothon. And of course, we're there to raise money for the Palmer Home for Children. Great organization, does great work for those children that face really difficult, trying circumstances. And the Palmer Home gives them hope, honestly, and helps provide them the life they deserve. And then we've got David Hardigree. He's a candidate for governor of the great state of Mississippi, a Republican candidate. He'll be on the program today at 1237. So it's that time of year, Rhino, where it looks like virtually every day we have a candidate for office, statewide candidates, coming on middays to tell us what their plans are, should they be elected, talk about their backgrounds, the status of their campaigns. In the meantime, we've got some uh, financial reports from the candidates just out. Of course, those were due yesterday, right? Right. Can be found at the Secretary of State's site. It looks like Governor Tate Reeves led all the candidates uh, as we head into the primary elections in terms of money raised. Latest report shows that he raised a uh, cool million dollars for the period in June and has cash on hand of $9.6 million. That's quite the war chest for the governor. Also, John Witcher, Republican candidate, for governor, raised $5,600 in the month of June, has cash on hand of $18,300. And then Mr. Hardigree, who will be on with us later on today, raised $100, has zero cash on hand, is what was reported. Brandon Presley, Democrat candidate for governor, 
He brought in $514,000, has $1.88 million on hand. Independent Gwendolyn Gray raised thirty-two k, has cash on hand of twenty-eight thousand eight hundred. In the very contentious lieutenant governor's race, featuring incumbent Delbert Hoseman, Chris McDaniel, the senator, the firebrand conservative senator from Jones County, and Tiffany Longino, Miss Longino, of course, was on the program last week. Enjoyed visiting with her. Those are the three Republicans in the race for the lieutenant governor. Mr. Hoseman raised five hundred and forty-eight thousand, has three point four million on hand. Senator McDaniel raised ninety-seven thousand five hundred dollars with cash on hand reported at three thirty-seven seven hundred. Miss Longino, I'm not sure what this means. I don't think a report was filed. There is a Democrat running for lieutenant governor, Ryan Grover. No report showing as well. And then you sort of get the picture. Lieutenant, uh, pardon me, Attorney General incumbent Lynn Fitch raised 62.5, has cash on hand of 1.2 million. Greta Martin, Democratic candidate for Mississippi's Attorney General, raised 24.2 in the month, has cash on hand of 17.6. Michael Watson, incumbent Secretary of State, raised a hundred and four thousand, has eight eighty-three six hundred on hand. Shawaski Young on with Mr. Gallo this morning, Democrat candidate. He's been on middays as well. He raised thirty-two hundred dollars this period, has eight hundred and fifty on hand. So that's uh that's where we are with the money situation as we approach. I mean, there are plenty of other candidates as well, as well but you get the idea of the of uh, those at the top of the, uh, the heap of candidates. And, you know, you've got to believe that they'll start, well, not that they'll start, they are spending money, and but that will, my guess, escalate as we approach Election Day. Don't you think, Rhino, you'll see more uh, more advertising, more I'm promotion. kind of of two minds. I feel like we we're seeing about the level we're going to see okay. until after the primary. I would say with the exception of lieutenant governor. Correct. Because I think that... Although I don't know how much more you could ratchet that up. Yeah, but the deal is, of course, that... Um, the lieutenant governor has significantly more money, almost 10x, than his formidable competitor, Senator Chris McDaniel. So how will that play into the whole situation as we approach the campaign? You know, my, my take on it is it, again, this is totally anecdotal. And it maybe it's because I, I do spend time on social media. Chris McDaniel's very active. His team is. They're uh, they're very proficient users of social media for campaigns, and that's where you see most of his campaigning. That plus, he is very active around the state, and just in personal appearances, so-called town halls and speaking engagements, etc. And the lieutenant governor, perhaps. 
seems like you see more advertising in the media. It's just anecdotal. You may have a, a different observation, but that's just My me. observation is you can only spend so much money on especially TV and digital ads until you hit a pretty hard wall of diminishing returns because people get sick of seeing political ads. I think that's right. And um, I, I seem to recall the 14 Senate race seems like it was just constant. I mean, it's every other. Uh, they bought all the airtime, and the candidates there. I'm talking about the Thad Cochran versus Senator McDaniel in the primary. They bought all the airtime. It seems that's all you saw. You're statewide, you know, certainly on the the major television outlets across the state, and they're from a local television station perspective. There aren't that many, realistically speaking. I mean, you have the Central Mississippi area, the coast. Yeah, I think you, you hit the diminishing return wall a lot quicker with digital than you do TV. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Because digital ads, they're, they're geofenced to catch everybody in this area or this state or this county. And you'll be on YouTube, for example, and you'll pull up how to fight carpenter bees. And all of a sudden, boom, campaign ads. You can't skip. Right. So the question is, what happens to the money if it's not used in a race? It can be, cannot go into your pocket. We pass laws preventing Except that. Except for a salary that is paid yeah. to family members, but it has to be reasonable. What, yeah, what whatever someone in the same role That's right. would get paid in the market it has to has to meet the market test essentially for reasonableness. Um, you do see candidates that often will transfer funds to other candidates. That's perfectly legal. Um, do I think not, it can also be used as a loan. Like you can you loan can. it out to other political organizations, but you then can. any return you get, what are you? You're just sitting on it, and they can loan it to you, vice versa. And then we we looked at the ability to use funds raised for state elections and federal. What did we find out about that? Remember, you and I had that discussion a month or so ago. We probably ought to look at that again. I thought we determined that you that you can't can't mix them. We'll look at that. I don't think you can. I think that was what we wound up with. Yeah, because there was a time, as you recall, before laws were passed in Mississippi, that you know you could just put that money in your pocket, whatever you had in your account. Right? Which, if I'm being totally honest, I really don't see a problem with that. If you've convinced someone to give you money to do <laughs> something, it's your money now. Landfill Management, Inc. on the ceasefire text line. That's 601-879-4395. Says, why won't Hoseman debate McDaniel? Hoseman reminds me of Hillary. We'll address that on the other side of the break and a lot of other stuff as well. It's middays. We're just getting started. Drake Bassett, President and CEO of the Palmer Home at 1105. David Hardegree, candidate for governor as a Republican at 1237. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. 
on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays, Super Talk Mississippi. You know, Rhino, a couple of weeks ago, before I get to this question about why McDaniel, uh, pardon me, why uh, Hoseman will not accept a debate invitation, a couple of weeks ago I, I made the analysis that it seems like more and more Republicans are sort of relaxing their position on abortion. And I was a little shocked to find out that Mike Pence, evangelical Christian, candidate for governor, someone, uh, pardon me, president, someone who regularly discusses his faith and how his faith guides him in his governing, public service, is calling for a federal ban on abortion at 15 weeks. And I think his logic there is, well, those states which have increased access to abortion and pushed out the gestation period, three or four states have none, no restriction. I think his theory is, well, we would force them to pull back to 15 weeks. But it seems to me like that would also mean that states such as Mississippi, which have have banned, except with a couple of exceptions, in a state like Florida, which is banned at six weeks, would essentially extend it out to 15. I'm shocked at that somewhat. And then just yesterday, the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, many thought would jump in the race for president who won the seat, the office of governor, in a state that's deep blue. And it was all because of the the goings-on down in the schools. Loudoun County School District, Fairfax County, very affluent areas of Virginia, very left-leaning, schools going crazy, all kinds of of CRT gender ideology, letting the dead gum, what was the situation? They let a transgender go to whatever bathroom they wanted. They raped a, remember that, a 13-year-old? Youngkin, I think, was able to capitalize on those events and the sentiments of people, even Democrats, and that kind of swept him into office. He now is calling for a 15-week ban. And, And the only thing I'm saying is that I I thought that, historically, Republicans believe life began at conception. And now we're seeing even those who you, you feel like would be fairly strongly opposed to any abortion after conception are now relaxing those views. So I just wonder if the Republican Party, does it have a stated position on that? Does it need to adjust that? 
do these candidates need to adhere to that? I mean, so you think you think about the term that I don't ever use and don't like rhino, Republican in name only, which refers to candidates and political figures who are affiliated with the Republican Party but don't govern in accordance with Republican stated principles. I haven't looked at that in a while, what the party platform says about abortion, but if it says we believe life begins at conception, I submit all these candidates are in conflict with that. Where's that going? So I don't think there's a candidate in the race for president that believes in a complete ban on abortion. And I think they're reading the tea leaves, knowing that that's honestly not a winning political strategy where you need to win, which are in these swing counties, especially with uh, the so-called suburban woman vote. It's just interesting to to watch them. He's just the latest. I just point that out. We pointed out Mike Pence a couple of weeks ago. Now it's Youngkin. Politically expedient for those that are espousing a 15 or a 20 or a 22 or a 24 week limit. But is it also not an example of political compromise? Sure, I think it which is. Which is something that only ever seems to come from the right. The left refuses to compromise on just about anything. Yeah, in I fact, agree, if I agree you with that. even ask them to compromise, if you aren't falling in lockstep with their ideology, you are ostracized, othered, demonized, considered every ist and ism in the book. Yeah, I totally agree. And so you could you could rationalize that. Okay, well, fifteen week would have a significant impact in the states that have have lifted the gestation period, push that out, or don't have one, and therefore that would cut down on abortions, it would perhaps increase them. And you just have to, I guess, do some ciphering on that in states that have imposed stronger restrictions and have lower gestation periods or none. Um, So it's just interesting to watch how starting to see a movement. But that would be an example, I would say, of compromise, and maybe that compromise honestly would benefit society and would sort of help and support the pro-life movement. Because with the Dobbs case, the states are free to do whatever they want. And so while there have been a few, such as Mississippi, which had trigger laws that have made it more restrictive, you got some which have just seen to opening it up, making it more accessible, even paying for it for people to come to their state. I mean, you hear the the concept of fetal viability thrown around when it comes to whether or not you should ban abortions at a certain point. And I've, it feels like they use the number of weeks because it's more granular, but it's also a larger number. Because if you're looking at 15 weeks, for example... That's in the first month of the second trimester. Yeah. That's four months into the pregnancy. Yeah. So, what? in fact, what Youngkin said, to your point, was that it's his belief, based on science, he says, that the baby cannot feel pain up to 15 weeks. And so he rationalizes that... that um, I guess, makes an abortion okay and that the baby can't feel pain. I don't know 
I haven't really researched that. If the, what the scientific opinions are, I don't know if there's any so-called peer review empirical evidence that is broad consensus in the medical community. I'm not sure. I know it's something been talked about a lot. You know about the uh, many believe that once a heartbeat is detected. In fact, I think some states have such laws. We did, right? The so-called heartbeat laws. But this is what Youngkin said. Baby can't feel pain until beyond 15 weeks. So that, I guess, in his view, justifies it. So back to our question, why won't the Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman debate Senator Chris McDaniel? At first, it's it's pretty common in that an incumbent doesn't agree to a debate against a challenger unless they feel like they really need to as a path to winning. If they don't feel that's the case, based on internal polls and so forth, they generally don't. And the logic there, the rationale in their mind is that would simply give the challenger more notoriety, more exposure. And I do believe that's what uh, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman feels. So it's, it's often perceived, I think, by supporters of the challenger who want to see a debate. Well, they're just scared to debate, don't want to really uh, discuss the issues, afraid they'd be exposed, that sort of stuff. And I get that. But there's, I think there's some, some merit to the argument that, yeah, you're really just giving the challenger a bigger stage, especially one that is lagging in money, in finance meaning they have less money to promote themselves in their name. I can't tell you the number of people that I've run into, honestly, in the last couple of weeks that don't know Chris McDaniel is challenging. Because they've asked me, hey, what do you think about the races coming up? Focused on governor. They see Brandon Presley. They see Tate in the general, you know. And then I say, you know, the most contentious one is the lieutenant governor. Really? Who's running against Delbert? I've literally had that from probably half a dozen people. Have you seen that as well? Oh, yeah. And I, I think that's a function of it takes money, you know, to promote the fact that you are a candidate. And these people are not the type. They're going to vote. But they're not the type to show up at a town hall. They're not the type to go to Neshoba. They're not the type to go to Jay Sento and, and the like. Um, they just pretty much kind of know who's on the ballot. They see that as an incumbent. They're reasonably happy, you know, with their performance, and boom, that's who they vote. And they know the name. That's who they vote for. Unfortunately, I think that describes a lot of voters across the country. We just, and that's maybe because government has too much damn power. We shouldn't have to worry about it that much, honestly. We're coming right back on Middays in the Element Well Studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Love is but a song we sing, fierce we will die.
back, everyone. It's Middays. That would be the Youngbloods. I believe that may be from the summer of love in 1967 or somewhere thereabouts. Certainly the theme would suggest that, right? What does it say? 67? 67. Dang right. Summer of love. Hey, Dashbury. The flower children hopping around San Francisco. Gee, I'd rather have the flower children running around there than the feces and the syringes all over the dang place. God, that just breaks my heart. So, let's see. Ben from Madison says, I agree. It's a fascinating aspect going into 24. Most Americans believe there should be some access to abortion within 16 or so weeks. However, most Americans are overwhelmingly against late-term abortions. That's right, Ben. We've shared that on the show as well. That's just based on polls. Some 60-plus percent favor some limited access to abortion, and that's all based on uh, the presumption that would occur in the first trimester. And beyond that, right, the numbers flip the other way. vast majority of Americans oppose anything beyond that. So it is um, still going to be, a, I believe, a big factor in the 24 elections. Ben also says, Hoseman needs to drive up voter turnout, otherwise McDaniel will be the next lieutenant governor. Just my opinion. I believe if Delbert wins, he wins by 10 points, and if Chris wins, he wins by 3. That's my that's my analysis at this point. Uh, good morning, Gerard, having a national 15-week abortion. This is from Sam from Mount Hermon. Would go against the Dobbs ruling because that would conflict with the state's rights. Um not true, Sam, because it is possible. So so here's the deal. What we got was a Supreme Court decision that said we don't have federal law governing abortion. What we have is a 1973 Supreme Court case that kind of evolved into law. So if you remember, Sam, right after that, the Democrats were all pledging to their base including Joe Biden, we're going to enact federal law codifying access to abortion. You know what I'm talking about, Rhino. You remember that was the big thing. And um, and so the deal was they were going to their base saying, you got to help us put more Democrats in the House, in the Senate, sufficient, and you need 60 in the Senate. This is not something you could pass wouldn't, wouldn't pass the test of uh, in the Senate by the parliamentarian that such a provision would uh, be acceptable in a budget reconciliation bill, is what it's called, that only requires a simple majority in the Senate. Bottom line is, unless you could get Republicans on board, let's say that the House stays the same, and the Senate stays the same. And you, unless you could get Republicans on board to support a so-called federal 15-week ban, you couldn't get a bill to the president's desk. Similar to the Republicans who sided with Democrats in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and the CHIPS Act, and in the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill, spending bill. Something we've talked about numerous times on the program. There are a handful of Republicans in the Senate 
that, that joined with Democrats to exceed the 60-vote threshold to get those bills to the president and enacted. Similar, um, should say, related to that, Rhino, I saw a press release from Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith where she was praising, essentially, uh, money, funds, being sent to the cities of Meridian and Laurel for infrastructure, and that is the result of the infrastructure bill, Joe Biden's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, passed in 2021, I believe. And this is this is the bill that required 17, 18 Republicans in the Senate, again, to get it over the finish line. Senator Wicker supported it. Senator Hyde-Smith opposed it. I just found that a bit interesting that her office released this uh, this presser uh, touting those funds going to those two Mississippi cities. And, and this is – I had a discussion with a member of the legislature about this this morning, that uh, something we've said so many times and – and this person tends to agree with that, you know, when you send your delegation to Washington, either in the Senate or the House, you want them to make sure they're in there fighting for your state's fair share. And you multiply that by 100 and by 435, 100 in the Senate, 435 on the House side, you end up with $31 trillion in debt. It's like, you go up there and be fiscally responsible and balance that budget, dead gummit. Oh, but as far as that money coming to our state or my community, bring it on home, baby. You see the conflict there? So when when do we ever be consistent? And here's the problem. If you ran for office and you said, look, if you're looking for somebody to go up to Washington and, quote, bring home that bacon, I ain't them. I'm going up there to quit frying the bacon that we don't have. Oh, we can't do that. We need you to go up there and get that money that we don't have, that we just lap onto the debt. And that's what's happening across the nation. And hence, $31 trillion in debt. It's totally crazy. Uh, let's see. There's something else that came in. As Rhino said, it sounds like a compromise of sorts has been from Madison. CeCe in, in Senatobi says sellouts. Anything to get elected. You know, it's unfortunate, but it does feel like that most political candidates, even while they're in office, if they plan to run for re-election, every action, every word is calculated based on boosting their chances for re-election. And, you know, telling people, I'm going to make sure you get money. It's what powerful. was the Herm Edwards quote? You play to win the game? Right. Exactly. <laughs> play to win the game. And the the object in the political game is to win the political election. Once you get there, all bets are off. Now, I'm generalizing a bit. But I go back to... But the opposite of that, if you don't win, means you have no, no say that's right. in how it's going to go. That's right. And that's that's the conundrum, is it not? That's the problem with political purity tests. Totally agree. But that's what's expected. So I, I give an example of something going on here in the state of Mississippi that a lot of folks have strong feelings about. 
And that's the income tax. And then you've got now sort of being injected into that discussion vis-a-vis taxes, sales tax on groceries. And there are candidates that are promising both. And I, I've posed that question. Well, show me the mathematical, economic, financial model that makes that viable. I can't do it. I, I, I'm pretty good at that sort of stuff. I made a living doing that, and I can't do it. So uh, that means, of course, you would have to cut spending significantly. Not, not just by a little, almost half of the state spending. If you wanted to do, to do that all in one action. If you wanted to phase it in, that's different. And if you included thresholds, targets that had to be achieved in order to continue to phase out the income tax, for example, I submit that would never happen. We'd never eliminate it. And what little we would get done would occur over a very extended period of time, 12, 15 years. So I think it's a bit disingenuous, and and I intend to ask the candidates, you know, how they, what their plan is specifically. Not at a high abstract level, I mean at a specific level, the time period for eliminating the sales tax on groceries and the income tax and just how that would affect the state's finances and uh, what adjustments they would make to spending to accommodate that. I think those are fair questions. So, um, income tax, a.k.a. the issue that cost Delbert nearly a million dollars in ads trying to counter, says Thomas and Greenwood. Mm, Disagree with that. Well, we're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Who draws the crowd and plays so loud, baby? It's the guitar man. Gonna steal the show, you know, baby. It's the guitar man. He can make love. He can make David Gates and Bread, a guitar man. It's good tune. Saw him at the Mississippi Coliseum in 1972, I believe it was. So I did check with Secretary of State Michael Watson. Just wanted to confirm that, in fact campaign funds raised for state office cannot just be directly used right. for a federal campaign. Right. But you can have uh, a, like an event where you would give the money back. You can do that to the donors who contributed to your state campaign, and then they just turn around and write that into your federal bucket. So, okay. Appreciate that. I get that. But I, I didn't think you could just say, okay, I got this war chest built up. 
now I'm running for federal office. I'm just going to use that money for that purpose, which will be a whole lot easier than having this kind of check swapping exercise. And that's a little bit easier said than done because you've got a bunch of donors that give small amounts of money. You're probably not going to go hit them up for that. And then, of course, you got these loan situations you, you were talking about, and sometimes you'll have the campaign loan money, as you said, to the candidate. Of course, sometimes the candidate will put their own money in and loan it to the campaign and then have a party when it's over to raise money to get paid back. That's common process as well. Chris from Oxford says, hell yeah, good tunes this morning, Rhino, I agree. So Thomas and Greenwood uh, says if he let that bill die on the floor, he'd be reelected without spending a dime. That is some completely false, Thomas. <laughs> Letting an income tax bill die on the floor? Um, I, I think what's Missing in that analysis. It's like he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. If he doesn't let it go to the floor, then he has to own it. If he does let it go to the floor and it dies, well, his leadership obviously wasn't good enough. Correct. He didn't whip the vote. That's exactly right. It's it's a no-win situation. It's political naivete. And I think what's missing here is that, again, there are numerous members of the Senate who opposed elimination of the income tax. That's just a fact. Honestly... After the backlash the House received from the first bill they passed, which increased the sales tax, I've talked about this many times, they got enormous backlash from vehicle retailers, dealers, car dealers, manufactured housing industry, bloggers, farmers, retirees, as you said, the most vocal group. And so they went back and and tuned it and tweaked it to the point where we ended up with what we got, which was, you know, some degree of, of moderate tax reform. I guess I say moderate. I mean, it's expected to amount to about $500 million bucks a year. It's more than once fully implemented, which takes four years. We're, we're through year one in year two now, tax year. So you said there was no support. No, I didn't, Thomas. I did not say that. I said there was more opposition in the Senate than just the lieutenant governor. I didn't say no support. I know for a fact there are many senators who support, but there are many who don't. And I would say that the lieutenant governor did not support full elimination. But again, I I point out, I remind, once that first bill passed the House, the House members were starting to wilt on it some because they heard so much. And I bring up again, Representative Becky Curry sat right in this chair four feet away from me when I asked her, do you think if a bill were introduced to eliminate the sales uh, set tax on groceries, would that pass? She said this afternoon. I'll never forget that. Her reply, her response to that question. Whereas... Eliminating the income tax, no way. Couldn't get that through. Even couldn't get it through the House, even with all the the ramp-up provisions. Hmm. So that's kind of what the deal is there. Don't see how they can cut taxes. Highway 49 from Florence to Mendenhall is like a gravel road. Income taxes don't fund that, Gene. That's Gene and Mendenhall. That comes from the state highway fund. 
And if it's county roads, Highway 49, of course, is not, but that's a U.S. road, right? So that's a combination of U.S. dollars and state dollars in the Department of Transportation, and the Department of Transportation derives the vast majority of its income from fuel taxes. And we have second, third lowest fuel tax in the country, and there's strong opposition to increasing the fuel tax in the state of Mississippi. Some states' fuel tax, like California, I want to say it's three and a half times Mississippi's. We're, what, 18 cents and change? California's 50-something cents, I believe. What do you see, Rhino? Uh, Alaska, I think, has a lower one than us, if I'm not mistaken. 58 cents a gallon in California. There you go. And ours is 18. So I said three times. It's three times would be 54. So we're taking a break right here for Fox News and Super Talk News. On the other side, it's Drake Basket. Pardon me, Bassett, President and CEO of Palmer Home for Children. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone hour two of middays is with you we welcome you we thank you so much for joining us and joining us now drake bassett president and ceo of palmer home hey drake how's it going today very good gerard how are you Doing fantastic. We are looking forward to visiting with you and being on site there at the Palmer Home. Coming up this Thursday, the Radiothon is scheduled for uh, just two days away from today. What uh, what do you think about all that? Well, very, very excited and uh, very, very grateful. Uh, I appreciate you coming up here along with other hosts and uh, the entire Super Talk team. Uh, it just says a lot. Uh, to our staff, it's encouraging, but you know, as you well know, the whole day connects the whole state, and uh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. And, uh, so we get excited about it. We're very thankful for uh, the support, the connection, and just that chance to talk to people and tell them about what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And the facility uh, is unbelievable. Uh, how long you been in there now? Well, thank you very much. Uh, we just have been in here for one year. Yeah. Um, we opened it up a year ago, May. Uh, so, uh, and I can tell you that we love it. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, for people who have the opportunity and want to come visit us, we certainly encourage that. We want people to not only tour the facility with us, but to hear about our approach to care and the way that we do things. But it's a friendly place. It's it's a, a welcoming place. It is state of the art. We're you know we're grateful for the tools and the resources that allow us to help children with it. Um, our staff is located here, um, and so we do. We really encourage people to reach out. You know, if they want to bring a community group, or they want to be, you know, Bible class group, or they want to, you know, just come on their own and spend some time with us to get to know Palmer Home. Our doors are open. Yeah. I thought it had been uh, just over a year, because I recall when we were on site, on location last year, 
it was brand spanking new. We were just a couple of months removed from when you guys moved in, and you you were kind enough to give me the full tour. It very it very much is impressive. But more importantly, Drake, what I remember were the smiling faces all over the place. Just as you said, it's a happy place. It's very positive, and it should be, uh, especially for children. They they should be uh, able and privileged to to enjoy their life at that age. You only go through that process once, and all children uh, should live uh, uh, just a fun, healthy, and um, safe life at that point. And it's how they turn out to be good, productive adults as well. I think that's right. You know, I think, you know, you, you know, you, you deal with the news every day, and I think people across Mississippi, people across this country right now, I think are reflecting on what values are most important to us um, because it's obvious that values and the decisions that we make um, have consequences. Uh, and, and so if those consequences are going to be favorable, um, then we've got to introduce values that lead us in that direction. It's my hope that children who are at Palmer home, and I get to see this, and as you said, you get to see the smiling faces too, but as they go through the smiling days, but they also go through the challenging days, yeah. just like we had with our families, I always knew I was loved. Um, and it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, and it doesn't mean things aren't going to require responsibility or choices. That's part of life. But if we can do that in an environment where, as you say, children get to be children, they get to swim in the pool, they get to ride their bikes, they get to play ball, they get to go to church, they get to come in in the evening and have a great dinner and, and, and sleep in a safe place. Those tough things that they've got to work through, those choices that they have to make, I think that that's the environment we want for children. That's the environment that produces the best opportunity for them to have a successful path. Never mind the challenges that they've had. We're going to help them overcome that, and we're going to help them navigate the future, but we're going to do it in a safe place, and we're going to do it in a place that allows for children to grow. Talk about, uh, Drake, your your staff and just their commitment uh, to their work, to their vocation. It's clear whenever I've, I've talked to them and certainly had the pleasure of interviewing them how passionate they are about that work and how much they truly do care. It's, it's integral to the success of the organization. Well, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. I can't say enough. Uh, I really can't about their commitment. We have quality, top-notch people. And I say that just, you know, openly and transparent. I, I, I'm encouraged. I'm inspired. Uh, I'm led. Uh, it works in reverse uh, a little bit, maybe around here, uh, hopefully, that, that I'm led by their commitment as well. Uh, I think we're all in this together. I think, you know, willing to go the extra mile. I, I think we're, we're attempting to not only, you know, have one or two people in a child's life that is a positive influence, we want everybody here to be a positive influence, not only on the children, but on each other. The, the people who work here obviously could be other places. Yeah. Um, you know, their talents, they're, they're, they could be other places, but they choose to be here. And I think that says a lot about the mission. I think it says a lot about some of the results that we're seeing the, the impact that we can make. And when you get up every day thinking, you know, I'm going to go be part of something where this might actually change a child's life. Even if I'm in a different part of the organization, it's important to us to connect it all. It's all got to be connected. So we're super grateful for the people that we have, and we appreciate 
uh, the support that people give on our Radiothon Day and other days of the year because it, it allows us to recruit that kind of talent. Drake, how, how do you learn, how does the organization learn about a child that's in need, that needs a home like this? How, how does that come about? I appreciate that because not everybody thinks about it, right? They just don't think, well, you know, what do you do when you're in a tough situation with your family and circumstances are tough? You know, there's just not an obvious solution. So we message our uh, our services to a lot of different groups and people, and we obviously we're on social media and things like that. But the reality is, is that uh, it can be through uh, the judicial system uh, that that's aware of our capabilities. But mostly it's just families, families going through some struggle, some challenge. They reach out to us and they say, this is what's going on. It might be from a grandmother who's taking care of the next generation. It might be a mother or father in the family that has custody of the children and they've got responsibility. Um, but there are a number of places uh, church groups sometimes will reach out and say, we're working with a family and, and we're wondering if you can help us. And I think it just that question, you know, can, can, can we help? Uh, and, and so we encourage people to reach out to us because if we're not the right place for a child or for a family situation, we can help them find a place that will work with them given their circumstances. But if the place is, if, if it's right for us, we're more than happy to work with families and children uh, to, to help keep them together. And if they have to be apart for a while, then we're here for that, too. Yeah, so you have, uh, to that point, you have a foster care program as well, right, where you, you work with uh, prospective parents? You know, the world's changed a lot uh, over the past 128 years, uh, given the fact that we've been around that long. Yeah. Uh, but, this, but the mission hasn't changed. Our mission is to work with families where they are. It's also to recognize that a child's journey in that situation evolves. So when a child comes to us here on campus, it's a beautiful campus, and it's designed to be a restorative environment. Give them a sense of peace. Let the noise calm down and let them focus on basic things, feeling safe, enjoying uh, a family environment, having access to school, education. All Over time, though, a child has experienced that for maybe one or two years, it's our hope that we can put them in a more permanent family situation by way of foster care. Right. So families that want to be servants as foster care reach out to us. We train them. We do the background check. We do all of that. And by extension, they're Palmer home. Yeah. So, you know, we're excited about that. And, of course, as you know, we also work with transitional yep. children when they turn 18. So I think really looking at a child's journey, their story, has allowed us to create services that match that experience. Yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, Drake, uh, I think about, is it worth it? You know, all this effort, all these resources, all these assets. But when you meet and visit with these kids and these families, of course it's worth it. I mean, that comes up a lot. I know you, you have to deal with that. What do you think about that? Yeah. You know, I, you know, you, you look at how big the challenge is across the country, probably half a million children who are at a minimum uh, out of home and, and need care. Uh, and you think, wow, the problem is so big. You know, how can we really tackle that problem? I, I think, you know, you, you, you know, you've heard the, you know, the references and the stories, but I think it's important for all of us to realize that we need to do what's in front of us. Yeah. We all, you know, we may not be able to solve things that are beyond our reach, but we all need to do something. That's in front of us. And when these children are with us and when they're in front of us, 
we see exactly the opportunity to make an impact. And yes, it's worth it. Yeah. Young man just graduated high school this year. He's going to start, you know, community college in the fall. He received a scholarship, a couple of points of recognition. This guy's on his way. Yeah. And he's going to do great things. And we think to ourselves, hey, that's why we're here. Drake, appreciate you coming on and talking about the Palmer home. And we look forward to seeing you this coming Thursday. Take care. See you then. Yeah, I look forward to you. You got really it. happy to see you, Gerard. Thank yeah. you. For your time. Yeah, man. We'll see Drake you Thursday. Bassett. President and CEO of Palmer Home. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. With you in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601 957 6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income growth. And guarantees the market's up today, rebounding a bit from yesterday. Investors anxiously awaiting the inflation data that is scheduled to be released tomorrow. And, you know, have we said so many times, Rhino, economists have to have two hands because they always uh, analyze matters with, but on the other hand, and that's what I'm hearing about this inflation report, I don't know what to expect. We got surprised with the jobs report last week, but I literally have heard investment analysts over the last couple of days in anticipation of uh, tomorrow's inflation report just offer completely contradictory predictions. Well, I think it's going to come in at this. No, I think it's going to come in at that. So who knows? That's why we have buyers and sellers in the market. And, you know, there's... Some who are predicting a deep recession. Some who are saying, no, I don't think we're going to have one. It's all over the map, honestly. No matter, though, Joe Biden's telling us how great everything is. And he continues to tout his economic accomplishments, although most of them really aren't right, unfortunately, aren't accurate, aren't truthful such as this deficit debt deal that he likes to brag about, totally untrue, really is crazy. Uh, Let's see. Thomas wants to know about why can't we get the lieutenant governor to come on and explain, or others in the Senate, their opposition to full income tax elimination. We actually have, and their concern is, I think, predictable. It's if we gutted revenues by a full elimination of the income tax without increasing sales taxes as a way to offset those revenues, then we run the risk of literally not having enough money to make ends meet. 
Now, we just got the final uh, revenue data from the Department of Revenue, from the Legislative Budget Office, I should say. And it, it shows that Mississippi is producing a surplus for 2023, the fiscal year, which ended June 30th, of about $700 million. I believe that's what I predicted, uh, Rhino, a few weeks ago. Well, of course, we only have one month left, so it wasn't any difficult mathematical exercise. But so $700 million, now that's certainly down from the couple of prior years, and that a function, I think, of all the federal money that rained down on the states. Some did not manage it as responsibly as other states did, such as the great state of California, which is producing upwards of a $35 billion deficit. Yet they're still entertaining reparations. What's that up to, like a bogozillion trillion dollars? It's insane what they're talking about. It's just nuts. Um, but here in the state of Mississippi, $700 million surplus. So you certainly could extrapolate from that if that's structural. And what I mean by that is if we're at a point with respect to state finances that we can continue to produce state revenues in line with the present pace and maintain spending in line with the present pace, such that we do produce a surplus, that does give some runway to, say, for example, eliminate the sales tax on groceries. $440 million, roughly, is what that produces. So we could do that, assuming all that moves forward and continues at the, at the present run rate. With respect to the income tax, that's a, that's a tougher hurdle without some offsetting revenue. There's also been calls, say for Brandon Presley, he's calling for uh, eliminating the sales tax on groceries, plus cutting the state portion. He didn't really specify, okay, because you know when you buy your car tax, what I'm talking about. You've got a state portion, and then you've got the, the, um, the county and city. And so what Presley has proposed is reducing that in half. What I couldn't tell was from his statement, do you mean just a state portion or the non-state, the municipal, county portion? He didn't specify that. Now, the ad valorem taxes at the county-city level are set by the counties and the cities, not by the state government. There is a portion of car tag fees, taxes, that is remitted to, collected by the state. It's a small portion of it. And so is he talking about reducing that in half? Remember, like, one of the final proposals, Rhino, from the House on the income tax elimination, there were calls for, hey, we really want to see our car tags go down. They are among the most expensive in the land. And you remember they came back with a proposal to do that, and, and I want to say we did the math on that, and it's like 100 bucks or something. You know, it was insignificant, because the state portion of that is not the major uh, piece of the tax. That, that, that's 
that revenue goes to the cities and the counties for their needs, roads, roads and bridges primarily. So I don't know where he stands on that, but he doesn't say anything about the income tax, does Brandon Presley. He's focused on the uh, uh, cutting the car tax, again, no specificity that I could find, and then eliminating the sales tax on groceries. He also did, Mr. Presley, I found it rather interesting, released his plan yesterday for health care. By the way, this was an announcement that he conducted in Meridian, according to the press release, and it was about the time we cranked up middays here, 10 o'clock yesterday. And so his plan has four major pillars. I'll share them with you. The first, not surprising, expanding Medicaid to provide affordable health care to 220,000 Mississippians and keep our hospitals open. Number two, creating a website. Dig into this, Rhino. Creating a website where Mississippians can compare health insurance and prescription drug costs so you can make the best health care choices for your family. <clears throat> that already exists. There are, there are numerous third-party websites. And, folks, if you go out and just appear on the Internet that you're looking for health insurance, you'll get bombarded. You're shaking your head. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. You'll get bombarded with all sorts of ads and all of your Internet use directing you to these various sites that tell me your address and tell me your basic, you know, minimal particulars you you're looking for one looking for a family etc deductible range kind of stuff boom you'll get hit with a gazillion proposals so i'm not sure what he's talking about there with respect to prescription drug costs so are we suggesting that every retail pharmacy is going to like populate their retail price for every drug on a website that seems a little impractical to me, and like a pretty heavy IT lift as well, and a pretty heavy lift uh, internally for the pharmacies. And I'm not sure that would be terribly meaningful, because as you well know, the same drug has about 82 different costs, depending on who's buying it and what's covering it, right? And which manufacturer you got it from, and if you have multiple warehouses, which warehouse it came from because of the time it was purchased, because the prices constantly change. Yeah, a million factors is the point. So I don't know how you would put something out there that would be kind of universal. And I've made this analogy. It's like walking into the McDonald's and you see the Big Mac on the menu and it's got to say, you know, see attached, and you give you a piece of paper with a, a long list of the various. If you're prices. driving a Prius, the Big Mac is two seventy five. <laughs> if you're driving an Expedition, the Big Mac is five ninety two. If you're driving an Escalade, <laughs> the Big Mac will be seven twenty two. <laughs> That's exactly right. I will also get to the other two points in Mr. Presley's plan for health care in Mississippi. And we got text rolling in as well. And don't forget, David Hardegree, candidate for governor of Mississippi as a Republican, is on in an hour at 1237. Stay with us. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back to Element Well Studios. It is midday. So, Rhino, is there something going on with Sports Talk next week? You got something on that? Oh, SEC yeah. They're going to be at SEC Media Days on, uh, I believe, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Man. Even though, if I'm not mistaken, Media Days will be wrapped up by the time they hit the air on Thursday, they will still be there. They'll be live from Nashville. For the 2023 SEC Media Days, you'll hear from the coaches, the newsmakers, and the newsbreakers as we count down to the start of the college football season. Man. Coverage of the 2023 SEC Media Days is presented by Genteel Apparel. Visit genteelapparel.com to check out their full line of sportswear, including the collegiate collection for Ole Miss and Mississippi State. There you go. Media Days. Hard to believe. It's already here. I mean, we just... The official start of college football season. We just crowned a baseball national champion. We roll right into football. But before that, it's the old Neshoba County Fair. <laughs> it's uh, political season in Mississippi. Or is that the week after? The week after, yeah. You're right. Well, I was thinking before football season right. starts. Yeah. So, all right, continuing on with Mr. Presley's plan for health care in Mississippi. In his press release, he says, My mama put off seeing a doctor because she feared she couldn't afford it. That's why my plan will provide for more affordable health care, keep our rural hospitals open, and make prescription drug and health insurance costs more transparent so Mississippi families can get the health care they need. Let's see. Tate Reeves has taken over $480,000 from health insurance and big drug companies, and he's done their bidding by keeping health care costs high while Mississippians struggle to get the care they need to stay healthy. There you go. So we already would uh, already, uh, pardon me, shared his first two points of his plan, which are expanding Medicaid and creating a website to compare health insurance and prescription drug costs. We had David in West Point says the same thing happens with car insurance, and that's when I I simply remarked that if you even look like you're shopping in the smallest way on the Internet for health insurance, you'll get bombarded with all sorts of sites that will help you with that process and provide options, etc. So I'm not sure what he's talking about there. Uh, and then his third point, <laughs> a po- appointing a director of Medicaid who is a career health care professional, not a career political hack, to administer the largest health care programs in the state. So that is uh, Mr. Presley taking a shot 
at Drew Snyder, who runs Medicaid, the Division of Medicaid in the state of Mississippi. Now, my personal opinion here is Medicaid is a giant insurance program that is, of course, highly regulated because it is a federal program. It's a shared federal and state program. There's state statute that applies. There's federal statute. It's blended, just like the money is blended. I'm not really sure if a, quote, career health care professional would be the best skill set, would bring the best skill set for running such an organization. In fact, I would submit it doesn't. That you need someone who understands uh, law, understands finance, understands the healthcare economy. I think about a healthcare professional as being one who is more versed in the clinical aspect of healthcare, which is very complicated. But so is the financial and the economic aspect of healthcare. I believe that the latter is more appropriate, a person, and would bring a more a suited skill set for the position. So I'm not sure what that means. I don't know how – it's almost like insinuating that there's mismanagement of Medicaid and therefore it's costing money or it's uh, not really delivering the services that – it purports to? I'm not sure what that means. It just sounds to me more like political rhetoric than anything else. Of course, the, the head of the Division of Medicaid is appointed by the governor, serves at the pleasure of the governor. Creating, this is point four, creating a drug pricing affordability board that would require mandatory reporting from pharmaceutical companies and pharmacy benefit managers about drug pricing mechanisms. Well, there's certainly no question that the pharmacy benefit manager piece of drug distribution, pricing, sales, it's complicated. PBMs, as they call them. There's no doubt that that's uh, something that needs to be investigated, and it has been. It's been looked at at the federal and the state level. And it's just a, it's a Byzantine structure, honestly. And, folks, if you go out and look up, you do this right now, look up pharmacy benefit managers on Google, right? And then, Rhino, if you select the images option, you will see so many crazy flowcharts. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. That show the relationship between the pharmacy manufacturers, the physicians, the hospitals, the retailers, the PBMs. It'll hurt your head. So I'm not sure what Mr. Presley intends to do here, but if he can figure out a way to simplify just a process, I don't mean the 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 carrying out, the execution of it. I mean just the description of it. Because I've tried, and I've spent some time trying to dig into that and read countless articles. It's brutally complicated. I know you worked in the industry. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. It's crazy complicated. And you know why? Because government's so much in the middle of it. At the end of the day, it's, it's about not so much government 
controlling that industry, but government regulation underpins it. And guess who's a big customer of pharmacy companies? Government. It's Medicare. It's Medicaid. I haven't really looked at it, but heck, combined, they may buy more drugs than the private insurance companies do in coverage, mainly because Medicare covers you when you're old, and you're more likely to need drugs when you're old. Man, I've been in the hospital before for surgery, and, and anybody that's been there has witnessed this when you're in the in the sort of pre-op area and they're getting you ready, and you can't help because there's just a curtain separating you from the next patient. Hear the conversations. You can't help but hear it. It's not, not like you're eavesdropping. It's like they're six feet away with a piece of cloth separating you. And, of course, the the, uh, the little interview always consists of what medicine are you on. Sometimes they'll ask you, please bring your medicine, right, to surgery so we can absolutely make sure. And, man, I've been there before, and I've listened to patients, and I've, I feel sorry, feel almost bad, a little guilty, because I like to have one medicine. And I only started taking that about four years ago. It's high blood pressure. I have borderline high blood pressure. But, gosh, the person next to me, they're reading off it's a laundry list of drugs. It's it's like they're almost Frankenstein, honestly. There's so many drugs keeping them together. You got this and this and this and this. And they got this bag. You, you know what I'm talking about oh, here. Yeah. Full of medicine. And I just wonder, how in the world could that person navigate all this complexity? I don't care how many websites you have. It's just, that's crazy. So, I'm not sure that any of this truly does move the needle. Uh, I still maintain that our most pressing issues in our state, health care, of course, top of that list, because we are the least healthy state, and we do have an economic problem in our health care industry. I still maintain that the loss of our most talented young people that graduate from our fine universities and are unable to secure work in the state that matches up with their academic training, or perhaps they just, for various reasons, want to leave the state. That's a huge problem in our state. All of this is solved. It's at least addressed with growing the state's economy. And that ought to be the focus. And few candidates will talk about that. They don't share any plans for that. So none of this here, to me, is supply-side policy to help grow the economy. And you know when you do that, then more young people stay, which takes a lot of pressure off the health care industry because they generally, if they're working for an employer, they're going to buy insurance even though they don't use it that much. And that's revenue to help offset the sicker, older people who have it that use it a lot, and their insurance really doesn't cover it one for one. And there's lots of other aspects of that as well, but we're stepping aside for a break right here. Don't forget, David Hardigree, candidate for governor at 1237. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. Don't you ever be sad. Please 
couple of days ago, Elon Musk confirmed that his Dojo supercomputer, this is something his company's been working on that would be used in powering autonomous vehicles. He says it's now online. It's in operations. And they're doing further testing, but this uh, this is a critical part of autonomous vehicles. And so get this. He says that its compute power is 100 exaflops. So an exaflop is is a measurement of computer chip, processing chip, performance. That's 10 to the 18th power. That's one quintillion. The flop stands for floating point operations per second. That's been a common measurement and compute speed for some time. Uh, the X, uh, I believe that means quintillion, if I'm not mistaken. That, by the way, that's a billion billion, a quintillion. In other words, it's real fast. It's amazing. So what Musk is saying is, oh, we might be a little closer than I thought to autonomous vehicles being a reality, because obviously they've got to be able to react super, super fast, and that's a function of not only the compute aspect of the technical architecture, but of course the transmission, the network connectivity as well. This is why 5G is critical. You simply cannot have autonomous vehicles without that. So all the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. All right, back to this health care thing. So it was Ron Paul. I know Thomas is familiar with this one. Ron Paul, candidate for president. I believe this was the 2011 debate, right, for the 2012 election. You're shaking your head. That's what your understanding is. And uh, just take a listen here. It's Wolf Blitzer of CNN is the moderator. Let me ask you this hypothetical question. A healthy 30-year-old young man has a good job, makes a good living, but decides, you know what, I'm not going to spend 200 or $300 a month for health insurance because I'm healthy. I don't need it. But, you know, something terrible happens. Uh, All of a sudden, he needs it. Who's going to pay for if he goes into a coma, for example? Who pays for that? In a society that you accept welfareism and socialism, he expects the government to take care of it. what do you want? But what he should do is whatever he wants to do and assume responsibility for himself. My advice to him would have a major medical policy, but not before. But he doesn't have that. He doesn't have it, and he's and he needs he needs intensive care for six months. Who pays? That's what freedom is all about: taking your own risk. This whole idea that you have to prepare and take care of everybody. But Congressman, are you saying that society should just let him die? No. I practiced medicine um, before we had Medicaid in the early 1960s when I got out of medical school. I practiced at Santa Rosa Hospital in San Antonio, and the churches took care of them. We never turned anybody away from the hospital, and we've given up on this whole concept that we might take care of ourselves and assume responsibility for ourselves, our neighbors, our friends, our churches would do it. This whole idea, that's the reason the cost is so high. The cost is so high, we cause a dumping on the government, becomes a bureaucracy, it becomes special interest, it kowtows to the insurance companies and the drug companies. Then on top of that, you have the inflation. 
The inflation devalues the dollar. We have lack of competition. There's no competition in medicine. Everybody's protected by, by licensing. We should actually legalize alternative health care, allow people to practice what they want. Yeah, there, there's so many flaws in uh, that argument. Uh, first, in the 1960s, when he was practicing medicine, before Medicaid came in to place, he would die. You know why? Because no treatments would be available. And so comparing the health care that was available, just being the devil's advocate here, in the 60s to today, is so apples and oranges, it's not even funny. You just died. In fact, the idea of churches stepping in to help, they didn't step in to pay the bill. You know what they did? Came down, gave you some water, put a rag on your head. Be comfortable while you die. The healthcare technology, treatments, therapies, drugs didn't exist to the degree they do today. Therefore, you couldn't spend a lot of money on it. There wasn't anything to buy. So that's that's a deeply flawed argument from Mr. Paul. The other thing is, if in fact, if in fact churches want to absorb this cost, why don't they just make themselves available to that right now? There are 220,000 Mississippians without insurance. Why don't the churches step up and say, look, I'll cover them? Or why don't they go to the hospitals and say, look, all these people that you're admitting today that have come in and don't have insurance and can't pay, but you're still going to deliver services to them? Just send us the bill. We'll handle it. Is that happening? Not that I've seen. It's time for a break right here. We've got Fox News and Super Talk News coming your way. we got more talk after the break. And then David Hardegree at 1237. He's a candidate for governor in Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studio. Appreciate you joining us again, David Hardegree, candidate for governor at 1237. So, yeah, I, I understand what the uh, Dr. Paul says. And, of course, there's the, the refrain always from uh, conservatives is that we need more. And, and he said we need more free market solutions and in health care and less government. I, I'm all for that. But you cannot have a free market as long as health care providers are compelled by law to provide services regardless of the patient's ability to pay. Name another industry that will provide their services knowing they're not going to get paid. I don't think you could find one. Who among us is listening, watching, that um, on a regular basis provides their work product, their labor, for nothing. Well, that's what we have in healthcare, unfortunately. And so those costs get absorbed 
to some extent they get passed on to those of us who do pay? It's a mess. So that's, I think he gets it wrong there because the law that requires hospitals that operate emergency rooms, if they participate in Medicare and or Medicaid, which is virtually every one of them, unless the, you're talking about the super specialty type hospitals, but they're not going to have ERs typically. But the law says that uh, when a patient presents and they're sick, you got to at least stabilize them even if they can't pay. Uh, this is the so-called EMTALA law, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. That was passed in 1986, supported by and signed by Ronald Reagan. And I know many out there see Ronald Reagan as a some say he's their favorite president, maybe the best in their lifetime. You, you hear that quite a bit. I, I agree. He was excellent. But that, I don't think, would pass muster today in conservative circles. That is anti-free market. Health care is a different animal when it comes to that. So these hospitals are required by law to stabilize the patient. They cannot refuse to examine or treat the patient, even though they know they're not going to get paid. You're not going to stop, let's say, a patient, one of the most urgent situations, of course, that's presented to the hospital where time is of the essence is a stroke. You present, you're having a stroke, they're not going to say, hey, dude, can you pay? Uh Uh-uh, I don't have insurance and I don't have any money. I'm sorry, you got to die. That doesn't happen in this country. And if they did, those who are associated with the patient would own the hospital in the court if that happened. So that's the problem, and that's the, that was in place before Mr. Paul ran for office. Now, I don't know that anybody ever asked him, would you favor repeal of EMTALA so that hospitals would not have to stabilize patients, would could refuse care and treatment? C.C. in Senatobi on the C. Spire tax line, his opinion is, if I don't have health insurance and a hospital turns me away, so be it. If I die, I die. Wasn't like I was going to live forever anyway, and neither is anybody else. Well, on, on that basis, C.C., we could take it further than that. What if we just persuaded all the sick people to quit seeking health care? That would bring the cost down quite a bit because they're going to die no matter what. So they might as well just go ahead and die. I don't think that's practical. I don't think most people would agree with that, but I appreciate your your um, position on that. So that's, that's the problem, is that it's impossible to have pure market dynamics in the industry as long as providers, two things, one, tall and two, is just a Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. I just don't know that any doctor, I'm not aware of any, I've never heard of any cases where, despite what the left promotes, where people are just dying in the street because doctors won't treat them, I've, just, I've never heard of that, ever. I know plenty who are tired of giving away their services 
That's why the vast majority of them do support Medicaid expansion, because of these 220,000 that would receive coverage, they get at least something. How can you blame them? Because right now, government's telling them, you got to treat them even though you're not getting paid. You've got to... You, you've got to provide your work product, your labor, even though you're not going to get compensated. That's what's happening now. And it's not just those eligible for Medicaid. It's like the case that Wolf Blitzer asked uh, Dr. Paul about. It's a young person who may not want to spend the 200 300 bucks a month for insurance, has some sort of emergency situation, shows up, doesn't have insurance, and if you've been to the emergency room, folks, and, and uh, been there a while, you can run up quite the tap in a short period of time. Um, and it's not like, well, yeah, those, those hospitals must be making out like bandits on that. Not when you look at their financial statements. They're all upside down. And it's because of the large number of uninsured that they're treating and those with Medicare or Medicaid, which reimburse under cost. So it's, it's a complicated problem. Uh, that's the point. Now, Robert Reich, you know who that guy is? He was, he's, um, uh, I would say, just shy of being a communist, honestly. I, I follow his, um, his ramblings, his musings on Twitter and social media, read his reports. He was Secretary of Labor, I believe, under Bill Clinton, professor at Berkeley, and very outspoken about public policy, especially vis a vis health care policy. Listen to this clip from a speech he delivered in 2007 at Berkeley. I will actually give you a speech made up entirely, almost at the spur of the moment, of what a candidate for president would say if that candidate did not care about becoming president. In other words, this is what the truth is, and a candidate will never say, but what candidates should say if we were in a kind of democracy where citizens were honored in terms of their practice of citizenship, and they were educated in terms of what the issues were, and they could separate myth from reality uh, from in terms of what candidates would tell them. Thank you so much for coming this afternoon. I'm so glad to see you, and uh, I would like to be president. Let me tell you a few things on health care. Uh, look, we, are, we have the only health care system in the world that is designed to avoid sick people. And that's true. And what I'm going to do is I am going to try to reorganize it to be uh, more amenable to treating sick people. But that means you, particularly you young people, uh, particularly you young, healthy people, you're going to have to pay more. Thank you. Uh, and by the way, uh, we are going to have to, if you're very old, we're not going to give you all that technology and all those drugs for the last couple of years of your life to keep you maybe going for another couple of months. It's too expensive, so we're going to let you die. Uh, also, uh, I'm going to use the bargaining leverage of the federal government uh, in terms of Medicare, Medicaid. We already have a lot of bar- bargaining leverage uh, to force drug companies and insurance companies and medical suppliers to reduce their costs. But that means less innovation 
And that means less new products and less new drugs on the market, which means you are probably not going to live that much longer than your parents. So his last point there has come true because this is part of the Joe Biden Inflation Reduction Act, which allows Medicare really not to negotiate drug prices, but to dictate what they're going to pay. It's, it's, a, it's a ruse when they say, oh, yeah, they're going to be able to negotiate. Well, that sounds reasonable. That's not what's happening. And, and of course... His young people point came true under Obamacare. It's exactly right. The mandate of having insurance. If you don't, you pay a big old penalty. The idea was we need the young, healthy people to pay in to cover the cost of the old, sick people who couldn't possibly afford the insurance necessary to cover them during those later, elder, more sickly years. Yeah. That's from 2007, folks, 16 years ago, before Barack Obama was elected and, of course, uh, signed into law the Affordable Care Act, which reformed health care in this country more than any other piece of legislation at the federal level. Interesting. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. I got you, you. With Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk, Mississippi. We're back with you in the Element Well studio. Yeah, we were just talking about Yunkin earlier, the governor of uh, Virginia. He was just on the channel here in the studio. You've also seen reports, folks, about electric vehicles not selling, not moving off the lots, inventory piling up. You're going to see some discounts. And it's the same thing. It's because the government's trying to essentially dictate consumer habits and preferences and not let the market sort that out. Now we're also seeing the UAW is, at this point, refusing to endorse the president, Mr. Union President. And it's because of their fear that the government is forcing auto manufacturers, their employers, to transition from traditional internal combustion-powered, engine-powered cars, vehicles, to EVs. And what they're saying is that the, uh, the wages, the benefits, the opportunities in, those envir- in that environment is totally different than the more traditional 
entrenched auto-making environment. And so they're, they're withholding their endorsement at this point. The big UAW, which is uh, Ford, GM, and whoever it was that bought Chrysler, I believe. I think that's the union that, uh, who, that uh, pretty much comprises those manufacturers as far as their labor force is concerned. The other rather fascinating in, uh, economic news is threads. <laughs> Facebook's new, Meta's new competitor to Twitter. You got like 100 million users already. And Musk is not taking kindly to that, so that's just kind of ratcheting up the conflict between those two tech titan billionaires. That's been fascinating to watch. Musk, uh, you know what happened is, Musk is not a favorite of the left. And they all bolted and went to Zuckerberg, who's more friendly to the left. It was the same thing with the conservatives leaving Facebook and Twitter and going to, was it Parler? And remember that? And that flopped. This is a little different, though. Only in as much as if you already had an Instagram account, it was easy to sign up for it. I really don't have any faith in anything Zuckerberg brings out after the failure of his virtual reality and the loss of billions pumped into that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he didn't even invent Facebook. He stole the idea from his buddies. It's not like he's the innovator behind all this. It's absolutely true. No different than... Bill Gates didn't really invent the disk operating system for the personal computer. He purchased that for $50,000 from somebody he he knew created such. I think I've told that story before. Uh, that in the book, Accidental Empire, is fascinating. Back on health care, there's a Yale physician <laughs> that is calling on doctors to wear body cams so they can be punished if they're practicing racism in their dispensing of health care. She says that she watched a black teen die in the ER as white physician colleagues chuckled. I don't know. This is Dr. Amanda Calhoun. She's 28 years old, suggesting mandatory body cameras. She said, I've witnessed countless racist behaviors toward black patients, often coupled with conscious and cruel statements. Ms. Calhoun, who is black, said, I have heard white nurses joke that young black children will probably join gangs and doctors describe the natural hair of black people as wild and unkempt. Hmm. So you wonder, is this something she fabricated for attention and some sort of other power, or is there something else going on? I have seen black... The first problem I have with the statement is she watched a teenager die, but she's a doctor, is she not? Right. And didn't either step in herself or call on others to do so that could have. I don't know. It just sounds crazy to me. 
I have seen black patients unnecessarily physically restrained, she continued. I have stood in the emergency department as a black teenager died from a gunshot wound, while the white physicians stood by and didn't help. That's all kind of bizarre, but that's sort of where stuff is these days. It's uh, You've got to infuse this racial narrative into virtually everything, no matter what. On the other hand, in the New York Times opinion columnist Maureen Dowd, wow, she took a shot at the president. I mean, uncharacteristically of her in that regard. In the title of her opinion, it's seven grandkids, Mr. President. You're shaking your head. You saw this. Maureen Dowd. I follow Maureen, and every now and then I email her because I disagree with stuff that she says, and I let her know that. But, wow, she's taking the old president to task here. It is kind of... It's just reprehensible, honestly, when you think about it, not recognizing. Have you also seen... Well, it's hard to put that in perspective of, well, the the president. I mean, look at the way The View talks about him. The whole thing with Hunter Biden is about a father's love, but then they come out against Marine Dowd saying it's it's nobody's (laughs) business. That's right. What about uh, this report that the president is a very agitated and inflamed person, typically, that does not really treat his staff very well behind the old closed doors. He's he's regularly infuriated and directs his fury at those in his presence behind the closed doors that apparently he's likes to use profanity quite a bit and which some people have tried to suggest it's due to his failing mental health or dementia but if you look at any reporting like look at the reporting the first couple times he tried to run for president in the 80s the same exact thing was being reported yeah that he's a loudmouth that he's obnoxious to his staff yeah that he cannot control his temper that he flies off the handle. These are allegations that are pushing 40. So nothing new here. But aides have come forward and said that he likes to invoke the admonitions, including the GD word and how the F don't you know this and don't F and BS me and get the F out of here. These are current and former aides who have come forward and attested to this sort of behavior by the president who have been on the receiving end of such outbursts. Huh. So it's a little different than the picture they like to paint of just, you know, an, an innocuous old man that likes to eat ice cream and wear Ray-Ban aviators, I guess. We're returning decency to the White House. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're saving the soul of America. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. Meanwhile, up there... Almost like he talks out of both sides of his mouth. But then again, he's got a D by his name. (laughs) President Donald Trump is... um, She's taking Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa to task. He and Ron DeSantis were in Iowa over the weekend. And it's because she's remaining neutral. 
And Trump says, I'm not inviting her to events. DeSantis is down 45 points. <laughs> so, so Kim Reynolds, the governor, is uh, again maintaining a neutral position. He's mad because he says he helped her in 18 and 22 get elected. He's frustrated at what he perceives to be her support for DeSantis. She says she's neutral. But here we got, and she did appear with him at an event. Uh, and she's been to several events uh, when she's visited his state. Now, I don't know that that's a big deal. It's a governor in another governor's state, and they meet up. But Donald Trump's not too happy with this, and he's gone crazy. Oh, man, no one should be attacked for declining to endorse a politician, says Governor Asa Hutchinson, also in the primary in the field of Republicans seeking the White House. We're coming right back after a break here with David Hardegree, candidate for governor in Mississippi. We interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge. Huge news. Huge. Huge. Huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, Super Talk Mississippi, live from the Element Wealth Studio. We welcome now to the studio David Hardegree. He's a candidate for governor running as a Republican for the office. Mr. Hardegree, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Jared. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I'm really excited about being here. All right, so uh, tell us about your background, David, What, uh, and then also share with us what uh, was the impetus for you jumping in the race for governor. Yes, sir. All right, uh, I've been uh, military for 38 years. I did uh, several deployments to Afghanistan and one in Kuwait. I did time in the Army Guard and the Army, and retired recently here in, in the, uh, the the state Mississippi National Guard of June of 2020, and uh, and just looking at it like it's an opportunity that okay, I need to I've, since I've served the country, I serve as a deacon in my church. Uh, I also serve as Billy Graham Chaplain Program as a disaster reservist. So it's now time to serve the state of Mississippi. Um, just learning that, and then also too on the the conservative value more or less. Um, Back in 2000, 2001, I was attending Hines College, Junior College and then going to Mississippi College. And it's kind of like the Lord prompted me to run. It's like the story in Samuel. You know, it's, it's, the Lord woke up Samuel a couple of times. He said, you know, Samuel. And he woke up and said, yes, here am I. And he said, and he went to Eli a couple of times. And then basically the same thing happened to me. More like, uh, David, I woke up about four o'clock in the morning, like, yeah, and all the lights in the house are out, and it was a pretty audible voice. And the next day, David, yeah. And then, then this, that thought came to mind, I want you to run for governor for the state of Mississippi. And I'm thinking, oh, you, you got to have the wrong person. <laughs> but didn't know this at the time, but God orchestrates our paths. Uh, the hand of providence moves in. Um, and here recently, I've got my, uh, three degrees, one in political science at Mississippi College. 
uh, while I was in Kuwait, uh, Master's in Legal Studies at Washington U. And then here in December, got the uh, Master's in Sports Chaplaincy at Liberty University. Hmm. And then a couple other people, they said, well, you're pretty well qualified for you know the position that you're at. So the time is now. I'm going to go ahead and step in. And I was in a prayer group uh, March, January, February 1st, and just kind of tossing it around like, should I or should I do this? You know, because you want to make sure you're running for the right reason. And I know good well that, you know, if I'm just looking at it by myself, that there's no way that I can compete with $9 million or anything of this nature. But it was the prompting of the Lord. You know, go ahead, fill out your paperwork. I talked to a couple of people, you know, on prayer group, and they said, yes, you know, go ahead and do this. So, and so basically, I'm I'm fulfilling the dream because if I look back at it and I miss out on an opportunity, and it had been four or five months down the road, like what if you know what if I did not fill the paperwork out or put my name on the ballot, you know what would have been life then for me? Would I've been miserable, or I'm just I'm glad that I did. I see. So looking at uh, your social media, uh, you show that you're. Owner and CEO at Small Business, you're, you're yes, the business. Yes, sir. We uh, mm-hmm. we purchased my wife and I. We purchased the BP station there in Sartarsha uh, about four or five months ago. I'm not familiar with Sartarsha, but Ben and Tony, you make the left mm-hmm. there on 4033, and uh, that store has been there for quite some time. So we went went ahead and picked that up. Uh, we're trying to just remodel it, uh, and we've noticed the good thing about it is it's bringing the community together. Uh, there are people there. There's a post office right next door to Satarsha Post Office. And the people come in there and say, oh, I remember back in the day when I used to work there. I remember when the minnows and the bait shop were in the back. Or I remember when the customers would come in and things of this nature. So what it is, it's bringing, bringing people back together. And, then, and at that time, now, Miss uh, uh, Cassandra Lang, she just opened up a Louis, I've named after her mother, right down the street. We did the ribbon cutting on that on July 8th. Uh, and then so now she's she's up and running for business, and basically her comment is the same thing. We come together, we work together as a community. Uh, and I said, well, I'll come over here and eat until we get get our store set up and ready to go, and then you can come over here and eat at our store, whatever the case may be. Gotcha. We're talking to David Hardegree, he's a candidate for governor of Mississippi. What uh, what would be your your legislative your policy priorities? What, what's your vision for Mississippi as governor? Right now, it's uh, my platform is standing on faith. And it's future accountability in the House. And what I'd like to do is, is I see uh, changing the course and direction of the state. Uh, I, would, I was a quartermaster in the Coast Guard, so I'm familiar with nautical terms. And if your ship is off course just a little bit, that they'll either A, run aground or hit the rocks like Cape Patterson. Been off Cape Patterson a little bit. But uh, there's some things, and we've got some great people here in the state of Mississippi, but sometimes their hands are tied and they can't do what they really want to do. And as I'm interviewing as uh, CEO of the state, I'm also interviewing other applicants when they come and do their when they're when they're running for their office to see okay who I work with and what direction we need to go in. Um, but I know that there's there's things that we can do instead of and I've heard some jokes like on TV and things like nature. You know, Mississippi is compared to like maybe Haiti or something in this this nature. A famous comedian said that. And I'm like, no, I know we're better than that. We can do a lot of good things. 
and we got to do what we got to do is just get people to come together business owners farmers the delta you know the city things of this nature and then work for a common goal where we can bring mississippi from running aground to a state where people are glad to come back to mississippi yeah let's go back to mississippi they got a lot of good things going on there instead of people just leaving the state i see three issues that i would i would uh, ask you about uh david that i think are top of uh, voters minds in the state of mississippi first would be elimination of the income tax and or the uh the grocery sales tax how do you feel about that yes sir we had a chance to talk about that the other day at mml and i was talking to an economist the getting rid of the income tax a lot of people would be more than happy to do that uh grocery tax the the state tax sale tax uh i'd be in favor for doing away with taxes however kind of like the scales of justice if you take away from one you've got to add something else and if the state's budget is not met, then you got to come up with monies someplace else. And then doing a little research and talking to people in, in some of these isolated communities that have two or 300 people, the grocery tax helps supplement the municipalities in that community. Or right, so if they do away with the grocery tax there, it'll be a relief for the people who are buying the groceries. But on the other hand, where are you going to come up with this extra money at? So either the state's got to come up with some stuff. I think there's, from what I understand, there's supposed to be a Christmas tree or a fund that the governor has. So that money's got to come from somewhere, or you're going to hike up prices someplace else, either the gas pump, uh, tobacco, highway, things of this nature, or um, power, anything of that nature. Um, but once that's taken care of, yeah, there's an equal balance there. And, it, and if somebody can come up with a solution on that, that would be great. What about the uh, citizen ballot initiative process? You know, that's something that the Supreme Court has uh, invalidated in Mississippi, and there's been legislation to restore it. hadn't passed yet. Do you have any feelings about that? That is something I need to do a lot more research on. Um, if I understanding, is that the opportunity for all citizens to vote on a topic if the if the the citizens would have the right to place a measure on the ballot that then the citizens would vote on, and if it passed, depending on how uh, the law was written, it would become statute okay. at that point. So. Okay, I'm. Uh, I agree that everybody in the state should vote on a topic. Okay, uh, because it gives because you're including the whole state, not just a few interest groups and things of this nature. If you're passing something and you want to. The whole state should be involved. I see it as this way. If you've got Mississippi on your driver's license, your place of business, or residence, you should have a voting voice. Okay. All right. What about uh, expansion of Medicaid is another very controversial topic. What do you think about that? The And I've kind of looked at some of that also, too. Medicaid, if I'm – I know that the, the money should be there to help those, and if I'm making sure I get the right ones correct, the lower-income people who come in who don't have the insurance to pay for health care, there has to be some kind of funding for these folks in order to get, because if they're minimum wage workers, they make maybe $400, $500 a week, and then by the time they grow, pay their groceries, their house note, and things of this nature, they can't afford to pay for health care. And so they either get they either get with a large corporation that has an insurance program, but some of these people do not have that. So if that Medicaid Medicare comes in to help these folks out, that would relieve a lot. And I, I understand sometimes it said that has been pushed away, but folks are right. needing that. But if the hospitals and medical care facilities need that money, 
why not bring it in? I think I saw somewhere in maybe some of your campaign materials that um, you wanted to pursue some sort of reforms to welfare, welfare reform. Can you explain that? we got about a minute left. Yes, sir. On the welfare, um, welfare is designed to help people out in their need. And it should be only for like four or five months. It should not be a lifetime institution. Okay. Um, pretty well. Thanks, <laughs> Matt. Okay. Gotcha. David, appreciate you coming in, and uh, good luck on the campaign. You going to go to the fair? You going to be there? Yes, sir, absolutely. Uh, we're going to be there Thursday morning, and uh, we'll make sure I wear something cool, calm, and collective, <laughs> and be ready to grow. But, Jared, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for coming in. We'll see you over there. We're coming right back, folks, with the final segment of Midday. Stay with us. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. Love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring. Bound by wild desire. We are back in the Element Well studio. It's the final segment, second day of the week. Rocking right along. Appreciate Mr. Hardigree for coming in and sharing his thoughts about uh, running for governor. This, uh, I, I, I do believe that the ballot measure process is a fairly hot topic, would you not say? Oh, yeah. And um, but it, you know, it's it's a bit convoluted, and I guess you and I have commented so much on it and talked to so many people on it, kind of have all that stuff stuck in the brain, and uh, it's it's requires a little little research, I guess, to to get to know that. But you know, I, maybe they're not the candidates aren't hearing that out there. Maybe maybe that's why. Because um, I think Miss Longino was a little surprised at that question as well, and I, I'm not trying to stump anybody. You know that, but I felt like it was an issue that many feel is important to them. Well, it's an umbrella issue to a few hot button issues, such as recreational marijuana, right. Medicaid expansion, et cetera, et cetera, and it's it's the way for the citizens to have their say on those topics in a way that they feel they aren't being listened to by the legislature. That, I mean, that, in effect, is the purpose. It's, hey, if the legislature's not getting it done, and we don't live in a direct democracy. We live in a republic, which means we elect our representatives to make law on our behalf. But this ballot measure process is just kind of a sort of an option you know, kind of a guardrail against, hey, you guys aren't doing what we want you to. We don't know why. Maybe you have opinions on that. So we're just going to get this done on our own, and we're going to pursue the process of getting a measure on the ballot. 
so that the citizens can vote. And depending on how that program is established, it could become law immediately if it's ratified at the ballot. Now, the old program, as folks know, it didn't become law. It became an amendment added to the Constitution. And I don't think that's the right way to do it, honestly. I'm, I'm, um, the For simple issues, I can see it being fine. But the most pressing issues that people are wanting to put on a ballot initiative, they're all multi-page laws. Yeah. And I mean, it would be, it wouldn't be in the best interest of the state to try to legislate and create law in the Constitution. Well, certainly, you would want a Medicaid expansion bill, for example, which will in be the Constitution. over a hundred pages. It'd easy. be gigantic. Yeah, one of the biggest. Uh, agree. Uh, the lottery is an example. That's one of the biggest in terms of just the number of pages, the length of the legislation ever. I'm just thinking back to the, was it the personhood initiative that was going to put in the Constitution that life begins at conception and it got defeated at the ballot? Yeah. But that seemed like a short, concise enough point to be added to the Constitution if it had passed. That's right. Uh, so, I mean, we could certainly debate that. I personally believe that it's more appropriate for citizen-initiated measures to establish law, not amend the Constitution. That's not to say that there are sometimes needs arise where we need to amend the Constitution. That process would be initiated by the legislature. They would place the measure on the ballot, and it still does require ratification by the people. The legislature cannot amend the Constitution unilaterally. It must seek essentially approval at the ballot box uh, by the people. James in Hattiesburg asks, didn't the ballot initiative get messed up when the House districts changed in 2010? Isn't that really how it got started? Essentially, that's the technical problem that the Supreme Court had when the case was brought before them, when Initiative 65, which would have established a medical cannabis program in the state, which did did pass, but uh, it was it was challenged uh, by the mayor of Madison, and one of the reasons was because Initiative 65 would not have allowed municipalities to opt out of the program. She objected to that, and she went to court, and she won, but. She won on the basis of the Supreme Court finding that, hey, wait, this signature uh, acquisition process doesn't really, uh, that, that's enumerated in our Constitution, doesn't align with reality in that it specifies that the signatures must be evenly weighted across five congressional districts. We ain't got before, so that don't work mathematically. It got struck down, and here we are. We still don't have a replacement process. We haven't restored it. We're out of time here today on the program, back in the studio tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.